Welcome to the Hill City Church Podcast. We are a church family located in Springfield, Missouri. You can learn more about us and support our ministries at hillcitysgf.org. All right, Scott is going to come out and read our passage today. Isaiah 6 is where we will be. Isaiah 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple, and above him stood the seraphim, or angels. Each had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to one another, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips, and your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then I said, here I am, send me. Awesome. Very good. So a little bit different sermon today. Usually what we'll do is we'll take a passage of scripture and I will teach that particular passage of scripture. We're We're not doing that today. So last week, Brad talked about unity and talked about a church family It's one of our core values. Today I'm going to talk about another one of our core values, and that is the reality that we are a gospel-centered church. And so we're we're going to start Ecclesiastes next week, and we'll go back to walking verse by verse through a passage and book of the Bible. But today the goal is to help all of us again renew our understanding of why we do what we do here, and that from the very beginning of our church was this conviction that in everything we would do, that the gospel would be centered everything, that the message can never be, here's what you need to go do. Message never starts there. The message is, here's what Jesus has done. And now, after he's done, now in that identity, in that light, I go do. It is a core belief of our church. Everything we do centers around the gospel. It will never change. So in our children's ministry on Sunday, they're not going to hear a passage about David and Goliath and say, now David is your hero and Goliath is the enemy and you can slay all of your giants, kids. They're not going to do that. They're going to hear the story and they're going to be pointed to Jesus who was the one who came and slayed the giant of sin and death. You see, you see the difference? Everything centers around the gospel. Jesus and what? He has done. It's the story we tell in every area of our church that we are a gospel-centered church. Um, there's a way that I, that I show this and I talk about it as I, as I share the gospel with people. I draw this out. Um, but I have two really cute assistants today who are going to come out and help me. That was kind of a weak introduction. Hey, that takes a lot of bravery for a couple of kids. Come on. Some of you all wouldn't get up here and do this. I ask you to call to worship. No, no, I'm scared. Right, come on. They're already. They, 
You girls got it. So here, here's maybe a, a silly little, but hopefully, picture of the gospel and how I tell it. In the beginning was God. So this little, is this glowing, girls? Did you get it glowing? Here, let's shake it. Oh, we broke it. It's cheap. All right, is, is, it, is it shining now? Oh, okay. All right. Well, this, this hula hoop is going to represent God and his goodness, his way, holiness. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth is perfect. Everything that happens represents God, reflects God. Everything happens as God intends it to happen. He creates man in his own image, and he said man was very good. Man perfectly, perfectly represents God, is connected to God. It took a couple of chapters in Genesis, and what happens? Rebellion. Humans rebel against God. And so this hula hoop reflects God and his glory and his goodness. And this hula hoop reflects man now in the age that we live in, the age of sin and death, the Bible calls it. And because of our rebellion, God can't exist with man. There's a gap. It's called sin. It's called rebellion. And in God's holiness, he can't be in the presence of sin. And so humans are separated and they are sent on a journey. This is how your Bible begins. If you can think of Adam and Eve walking out of the garden as exiles now, separated from God on a journey. And they could have stayed like that. God could have said, you know what, I created humans, they rebelled, I'm done with them. But the narrative of the Bible is, but God. If anything is going to bring these two back together, it will never be this circle coming here. It has to be this circle coming. And so here's what happened is God breaks through the age of sin and death through a person named Abraham. And he creates a covenant with Abraham and says, Abraham, I am going to do something to fix the world, to fix this sin problem. And it's going to start with you. And so he creates this Jewish nation. And the goal of the Jewish nation is they would be God's representative right here. Now, they're not here. They've already messed that up. But not here either that they would be God's representative to show the nations who God is. And God gave them practices to enter in here that to cover the sin of Israel, a sacrificial system where their sins could be paid for and they could operate here. Now, if you know your story of the Bible, there are times when it looked like this, and there are times, King David might be an example, where the presence of God came into a world in even a, a more full way but there were other times in Israel's history where the, good, where the glory of God was but a sliver in their story, right? And so this is the dynamic, back and forth and back and forth. And so the plan from the beginning was God would send a rescuer to come and live this in-between. And so Jesus came being fully God. This is crucial. Jesus came from here, not from here. See, you and I are born from here. We're born sinful. Jesus came from here, perfect, lived a perfect life, never crossed over the boundary of sin, rebellion of God, lived a perfect life, died on the cross. As he died, he took all of the sins of the world upon himself that he might bring these people back to God. And he invites us here. Now, many people will reject him. And God gives the freedom for them to reject him. And people that reject God, the Bible teaches, 
If they don't want God in life, then they don't want God in eternity, and God gives them what they want. Again, does God send people to hell? No, people send themselves to hell by their rebellion. God offers a way to him, and that way is through Christ Jesus. His death, his life, I'm sorry, his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension, all that he accomplished. And now here we are, and the goal of the church now in this new world is that, Lord willing, we are showing and that the glory and goodness of God is overtaking sin and death. Now, will we ever do that completely? No. No, we won't. And there's been dark ages of the church. Okay? So the, but here's the promise. The promise of God is that, that one day Jesus will come back, and when he comes back, he will create a new heaven and a new earth, and it will be restored forever. That is the Bible story. That's the story of the Bible. God, us, humans, Jesus, or God's action, and then a response. Let me do it like this. So that's the big picture story. Let me tell your story. You were born here in sin and death, and every one of us has sinned. Jesus died for your sin. You are invited by faith to believe and come here. You don't get here by your actions. You get here by believing in Jesus' life, death, burial, resurrection, ascension. And now that you're here, the promise is, well, the the invitation is that as we go throughout our life that we are becoming more and more and more like Christ. That's my prayer. Now, if you're like me, it's more like this, right? But that's the prayer. And then one day the hope is that either upon my death or Jesus' return, whichever comes first, that Jesus will restore my body, my soul, and make me whole again. That is the gospel promise. Thank you, girls. Can you give them a hand? So it is the story that the Bible teaches. That narrative is all through the Bible. The passage Scott just read tells this story. We could have went to 15 places. Ephesians 2 tells the exact same story in the exact same rhythm. Look at any of the letters that Paul, Peter, Uh, The writers of the New Testament wrote, and they follow this same trajectory. It starts with God and his goodness. It goes to their rebellion, and then it goes to Jesus' covering, and then their response. It's the same pattern. It goes like this. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and lifted up, God. And the train of his robe filled the temple, and above him were angels, seraphim, and with two Wings, they flew with two, they covered their face. And each one cried out to another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. It's God. And he said, Isaiah said, woe is me, for I am ruined. For my eyes have seen the king. See, when Isaiah sees the glory of God, his eyes go to himself and he sees his brokenness. My eyes have seen the king. But then the story goes, one of the angels took a burning coal and he took it and he came and he touched it on my lips and he said, your sin is atoned for. That's the work of Jesus. It's a foreshadowing of Jesus. Your sin is atoned for. And then what's he say? God says, who will go for me? 
Who shall I send? Isaiah said, here am I. Send me. It's the gospel story. And as we talk about a gospel-centered church and how that applies to this gathering, here is our goal. Every single week, we want to tell this story. Every single week, we come together as exiles who are living in a place that is ultimately not their home. We forget that sometimes, right? Ultimately not our home. We come together as exiles to retell the story together of Jesus and his death, resurrection, ascension on our behalf every single week. We never want to forsake the gathered church the community of believers coming together. One of the things we've said a lot here, that when you come on Sunday, it is not your, quote, you and God time. It is our us together and God time. It is such a crucial thing that we believe here, and we have some very particular things that we do to help us understand it is a corporate gathering. You read scripture today as a corporate body, to remind yourself that there are other brothers and sisters on the journey of faith with you. Here's what a, a guy named Sam Parkinson said in, in, a, in a book. He said, Christianity is not purely a personal religion. To be sure, the church is comprised of individuals who have been personally regenerated by the Holy Spirit or, or, or saved and made new and have been justified by grace through faith individually, but... They have been individually brought into a corporate assembly. It seems there is a special grace given to the gathering of believers who come together corporately to tell this story. And so everything we do, and I'm going to walk through, if you're new here, I'm so glad you're here today. I'm going to walk through our entire gathering, why we do what we do, because everything we do tells this story. Because here's a fundamental belief we have, that Christian worship, our gatherings, is formative. Here's what I mean by that. But what we do, the story we tell today, shapes us. Not just the content of what we do, but how we do it, that everything we do shapes us. Christian worship is Formative. The ancient church had a, a, a phrase, it was in Latin, I won't try to say it, but here's what it says in English. So you pray, so you believe. So you worship, so you believe. So you gather, so you believe. So how we gather, what we do as we gather shapes us just as much as the content of our gatherings. Did you, you hear that? How we gather shapes us just as much as the content of how we gather. So if a church comes together and they are stiff, they are grumpy, they're cold, they're serious, that tells us something about the nature of God, of what they believe about the nature of God. Now, you walk into a church with lofty architecture and difficult language and disconnected rituals, that tells us something about the nature of God. That God is not comprehensible to the average person. You just let me do it. Now, a church that is filled with rock star worship leaders and pastors and flash entertainment says something about the nature of God. 
Christian worship is formative. How we gather shapes us. They form a particular type of community with a particular type of beliefs. We as humans can be shaped by what we do. Now, you've seen this before. Can you all see this more? Do I need to bring in the light more? Can you see it? Bring it up. Yeah, it's, it's too dark. I'm sorry. Okay, you guys have seen this before if you've, if you've been around here before. But here's what we believe at Hill City. I can never draw a heart. Actually, that's a pretty good heart. That's one of my better ever. Usually they look more like a butt when I draw them. But, you know, that's pretty good. That at the center of everything you do is what you love. Everything, the reason you do anything, because you love it. You know why you sin? Because you love it. <laughs> hey, Hood, did you, hear what, did you hear what so-and-so did? Oh, no, tell me. I want to know. I love it. <laughs> Anyone else? Hey, the reason we sin is because we love it. You Everything you do at the center of you is what you love. And here's the reality for every one of us. You live out what you love. Your actions come from your loves. Now, here's what we also believe. You can shape your loves. That you don't have to love just what you feel like you love. That actually your love can be shaped, I don't know if I have room here, by your practices. I ran out of room. But your practices shape your love. It's foundational to what we believe. Let me give you an example. I love hunting, bow hunting. It's one of my passions. For years, it was um, an idol. I did it too much. I cared about it too much. There's still a part of me that loves it. Last week, I was in Wyoming with Troy, who's the salt director. He came in... Um, preached last year, if you remember that, leads our salt, salt network. Him, he loves hunting too. We're out in Wyoming on a ranch and we're like looking for elk sheds and deer sheds and we're talking about hunting, 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 and it is stirring my love. Those practices stirred my love. For the past week, that's all I think about. I was on the way home from fall or from our college retreat yesterday, leaders retreat, driving through all this farmland thinking, man, I wish I had that. Oh, I wish I had that. See, my actions come out of my love. My practices shape my loves. So we believe that is tied to our gatherings, that we, in our gatherings, can actually begin to shape our loves so that our actions live out of our loves. Hey, you, we are not a, you need to, you need to white-knuckle and fix your sin problem church. Here's what you need to do. You need to fix your love problem. This, we are not freedom from this sin, this sin, this sin. We are freedom for Jesus. And as we love Jesus more, the sin begins to fade away because the love of Jesus eclipses our sin. Because here's the narrative, narrative of the world, and I say it too. If only, oh, if only I had that piece of hunting land. If only my wife would. If only I had more. Anyone? The book of Ecclesiastes we're going to be in, that's the message of Ecclesiastes. It's the, it's the if only. 
So we want to tell the story every week that we don't need something else, that Jesus is better, Jesus is enough. There is nothing better than you. Here's how we do it. In our gatherings, we start every week with the glory of God. We start with a call to worship. Meg crushed it this morning, a call to worship that begins at the very beginning to point our eyes to God, to Jesus. It's a, a call to worship, it's an invitation to say that God is the one that invites us to worship. We don't invite God here. Okay, you didn't hear that. This is good. God, will you please be here today? He already is. He invited us in. He's the one that initiates. And so we start with a call to worship. It points us to God. Here's what Psalms 19.1 says. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. When you gather together on Sundays, we gather, we join the chorus of creation praising God. It was really cool at our college leader retreat two nights ago. We we did a fire out in the middle of the woods, and, and Jarrell came and brought his guitar, and the kids were singing. And it's right on the edge of a lake in the middle of the woods, and I was hearing this noise as they were singing, like in the background. And, and so after, between songs, I was like, hey, Jarrell, hold on. Let's be quiet. And we listened to the echo of creation, the frogs, the bugs. The, I mean, it was, it was deafening how loud. Students, right? Deafening how loud it was. And call to worship is an invitation that we join creation to recognize God. Our gathering starts with God. Okay, then next, so, so today, even our gathering, Jarrell, you started with all creatures of our God and King. It points us to God. He followed it by graves to garden, which transitions, it's kind of both. It's like, God, you're good, but yet, here we are. We made a grave of our life, right? And so the next place we go is to look at ourselves. And one thing we believe here, getting my markers straight, is in confession, corporate confession of sin. God, we need you. We need you. Another quote from a guy named William Dyerness, as a community, our corporate confession of sin is threefold. Acknowledgement that one, the world is not the way it's meant to be. Anyone feel that? We as a church are not meant to the way, we as a church are not the way we are meant to be. Hill City is not a perfect church. Don't you put us on a pedestal, we will let you down. Yes, yeah, sir. I am, number three, I am not the way I was meant to be. We go, you didn't hear that one. You like the one about the world's not meant. <laughs> I, it's not his fault and her fault. It's my, I'm not the way. That sin's invasion into our world and our hearts has corrupted all of us. And apart from the mercy of God, we are without hope. That's what we do confession. Jarrell led us through a scripture. We read it together. And here, and the scripture had a checklist of here's all the things a righteous person does. I hope you didn't hear that and be like, yep, check, check. No, you should hear that and be like, oh no. But God, who's rich in mercy, sent Jesus, right? Now, here's another aspect of what we do at Hill City that I don't think many churches do, but I think it's beautiful, is we want to lament together well. 
Lament is this corporate acknowledgement that we live in a sinful world and that we can't make sense of it all sometimes. It's an invitation of God to pour out our fears, our frustrations, our hurt, our anger, because he understands. When I, when I worked with the uh, football team, when I, when I work with those guys, here's what I tell them. Life is a full contact sport. You can be going this way and all of a sudden, boom, you're blindsided by a crackback block that knocks you on the ground. That's life. So lament speaks to the darker experience of life. Next, we go to what we call assurance of pardon. It's Jesus. It's that, yes, God is holy, yes, we have sinned, but the assurance of your pardon, that you are declared not guilty, that your sins are justified, the assurance of that is not that you didn't say a bad word this week. Your assurance of that is Jesus, his birth, his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, and his ascension. That is your assurance of that. And so we always make sure in our gathering to sing a song, to make a statement to declare that you as believers are righteous. What's Paul say as he starts his letters? To the sinners in Ephesus? No, to the saints, to children, to the beloved. Your identity, and we gotta be careful about this. Oh, I'm just a sinner. Yes, but you're also a child of God at the same time. Well, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. No, I am a sinner saved by grace and now a child of God. I'm both. So every week, I must, Daniel must be reminded that my actions are not what saves me. Many of you grew up in churches, though, that would have read that passage of Psalms with the list of what to do and said, okay, now, Christians, you need to go do that. Anyone? Yes. There is only two places that lead you. One is pride. Yep, I did that. And then you can look down on every other brother or sister you think doesn't do that as good as you. Or it leads you to despair and you feel shame and you then are living shame and eventually will walk away from your faith because you're like, that's just a load of shame and I don't want any part of it. That's what happens when we make us the hero as opposed to Jesus. So we have a declaration here that Jesus is enough, that he doesn't need our actions to make us righteous. Did I spell that right? I think I did. The R is a little wonky. And now that moves us to response. Here's what we say. The gospel demands a response. No one hears this message of God, my sin, Jesus' death on the cross. Eh, thanks, Jesus. Peace. See you in heaven. I'm going to do my thing. It's not the gospel. Right? It's you are saved by grace through faith as evident by your actions now, not perfection, you will never be there, but the Christian life should be a continual repentance, turning back, turning and shaping your loves back to your creator. We respond. One of the most important ways, ooh, I'm gonna have to get low here. We respond as communion. Every single week, 
pre-COVID. <laughs> By the way, we've ordered, the, we're trying to order those little, you guys seen those little communion things, looks like a coffee creamer, and then you pull off the top and it's got your bread. Those are on back order across the country <laughs> because no one can do communion right now. So we're trying to figure that out. But when we do communion, here's, here's the picture. We would have someone stand right here and you and I walk down and we are served communion. It's a picture of Jesus serving you. When you walk down, you bring nothing with you. It's a reminder that every single one of us are invited to the table of God's mercy. And we are all on different paths in that journey and different struggles, and we fall down and we get back up and we are invited to the table again. It's communion. We do it every week here when we can. As a picture of this story. And then we end, and I ran out of room here, we always end with a benediction, which a benediction, the, it means good word or word of blessing. In the ancient tradition, the ancient church, there was this, and not in this like eerie supernatural way, but there's this thought that this good word would go out among the congregation, would rest on them for the week. That's kind of the picture of why benediction started. And so after the sermon, after we sing and respond, after we communion, one of the pastors will come back out and we will give you a declaration, a reminder that you are loved by God, that we are in community together, and that that needs to be our identity. And then we end with a charge. Be with some people. Or Giacomo says, be, what did he say? Be, be with people as, I don't know what he said. It was really funny. I still tease him about that. Be with people as sent people. This is our gathering. You guys, you recognize it now? You see why we do what we do? Every single thing we do around our gathering is centered around this belief that we are a gospel-centered church. We tell the story. And we call it a gathering on purpose. Hey, you call our church, a, I don't know if you're on staff, you call this a service, you got 10 push-ups. <laughs> service is what we do out in the community. We serve. This is a gathering of believers. Hey, and it... Because it's so important because when it's a gathering of people, I come ready to give and receive and participate. Now, if it's a, a concert, I come expect to be entertained. Well, that music better be good today. Well, hood better, boy, loads better, right? No, it's a gathering of believers. Here's maybe a metaphor that it should be like a family reunion, where it's people you haven't seen in a week, in a while, and you get to come together, and it is a family reuniting around a table, communion, to celebrate and love one another well. Here's a different metaphor that relates to me. It's warriors reuniting. It's that the battle, we've got, a, we've got a battle, we've got a mission we need to accomplish, and we're all bloodied and banged up and bruised, but after the mission, we come back together to be renewed. It's a gathering of believers. Now, let me make sure this is clear. Worship is not music. Worship is not music. Now, music is one of the ways we worship, but worship is not music. As a matter of fact, they'll be up on the, on the screen. I don't know if you can see it now because it's bored. Can you see this? 
There are lots of commandments that you and I have about what we do when we gather. Prayer, reading of scriptures, preaching from the scriptures, communion meal, singing, giving of offerings. It's part of worship. Part of worship. Confession of faith and baptism. Greeting one another. Can I just have some fun with this? Do you know every single one of these verses say? Greet one another with a holy kiss. (laughs) You better pucker up, Sean. I'm coming for you, baby. I'm going to be more biblical around here, right? Listen, you greeting one another is part of worship. You are commanded to do that. So hear me. I love you. I love you. You show up 10 minutes late, you miss part of worship. You do. Part of worship is the greeting of one another. And then here's another part of worship. Responding to praise and prayer with the saying of amen. Okay, we are trying to change culture here. We've been after you, you know this. Trying to get some more response. Not just, I don't need your pump up during the gathering. I don't need your approval. I, I just don't. But it's actually part of the biblical invitation as people gather that there's an echo of agreement from the people. Thank you. That it's not just me. See, and it's so important because if it's just me or Brad and we're saying you're all listening, that creates a, an order, a hierarchy. Oh, he's closer to God. No, I'm just as broken as you all are. Thank you. He knows me. It's like, man, I spent some time with Hood. I know that. I'm just a, so, and can I be honest? I don't always believe what I'm telling you. I don't always believe that Jesus is better. I believe the hunting ground is better. I need to hear you say, yes, Hood, Jesus is better. That's part, so giving and receiving. Hear me, changing culture. When one of your worship leaders sings a great, when we together sing a great line that just is like punched with truth, what if there's a shout of praise? An amen, a clap, a yes. Like what if we start agreeing together more and more, because it's part of worship. This is so important. Worship is not music, because here's the reality. If worship is music, then you mess with someone's music, you mess with their worship. I say it again. If worship is music, when you mess with someone's music, you mess with their worship, their access to God. And it makes my preference key to me getting to God. No, no. Music is not worship. Music is a piece. It's a gift to help us tell the story. Food is a gift to help us tell the story. The meal. Wine is a gift to help us tell the story. Music is one of those gifts. Here's what Colossians 3 says. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. Here we go. Singing psalms. Singing hymns. Singing spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. It almost seems like there's even different types of songs. We can sing psalms. We can sing hymns. We can sing spiritual songs. I wish we knew what this meant. 
But here's, let the word of Christ, Christ dwell in you richly. Hear me, church. The lyrics we sing are just as important as the music we sing to. No, just as more. Are way more important than the, the music we have. Like the lyrics we sing, how we sing shapes us. It forms us. And I love how music has transitioned over the life of the church in the past 100 years. So I think you go back, there was oftentimes a cold seriousness to worship and to music. I just did it. It's Tim Pushup. To music, which is part of worship, right? But we also have to be careful we don't swing so far over that the music becomes something that hypes us up. Then we forget the content, the lyrics, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Not that lead riff of a lead guitar. You hear me? And it's so cool that God, like science is catching up to God. Because God told us this from the beginning. He commanded Christians to sing. Commanded believers to sing. You know that Christianity is one of the few religions where you sing together? But now science is telling us something that music, especially corporate music, does something in our bodies. Do you know that chemicals are released when you listen to music, especially with other people, that elevate your mood and stir your affections? It's called dopamine. As you sang this morning together, dopamine release, it's the pleasure, cuddle hormone. And it helps stir your affection for what you're singing about. It happens at a chemical level. Science is backing it up. That's why God from the beginning said, hey, sing together of my praises. Don't just talk because music does something. But hear me, in, 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 the, in this, this church culture that we're in now, we have to be so, so careful that it doesn't become about the music and the feeling and the atmosphere more than it does the words we sing. Can, can I show you, I want to show you a clip I'll show you a clip. And, and this is in no way, like, these guys are performers. I would love to be at this concert. They're, but I want you to watch this clip. It's from a Coldplay concert. And if you didn't know the words, you might think it's a church service. Will you watch? Doesn't that, it just makes you want to like, Darrell, I want to see you do that run and jump thing one Sunday, man. I think you can make it up from the floor up here, buddy. I, but did you see the emotion of the people, the hugs, the tears? Music does something to us. One of the things we have to be so cautious about, I, we believe here, is that yes, music is good. We want great music that connects to our hearts because it does something, but the lyrics must be there. The word of Christ must be dwell richly. Here's a great quote um, by a guy, Sam Parkson, I quoted him earlier. We can fool ourselves into thinking that what we are doing is right 
because something is happening. I feel something. And that doesn't mean God is pleased. That something might be a stench to God's nostrils. There's many places in the Bible where God says, like, I'm sick of your singing. I'm sick of it. Our impulse should be not to produce feelings. This is good. Worship leaders are not conjurers. So as we talk about worship in our weekly meetings, we're not talking, oh, how can we just make this? How can we get these, like, goosebumps over? We're not going there. We're saying, how do we have really good content, and now let's bring great music alongside of it? The style of music doesn't ultimately matter. It's the words we're singing that what, are what matters. And as a matter of fact, great music, great music can make shallow lyrics seem profound. Fair? It's way harder for bad music to mess up profound lyrics. Anyone listen to Bob Dylan? That brother can't sing. But we all cry when he hears his words because his lyrics are so profound. John Prine, oh my gosh, but I love him. I love his singing, right? So it's got to be about the content of what we're singing. Music helps add to that, but ultimately the focus can't be music. But hear me, music does matter. Um, you guys know, I've told you I love Hamilton. fell in love with that musical as I watched it. There's this thing on YouTube called the Hamilton Polka where they take the words of Hamilton and put it to polka, it's awful. It does nothing to stir my heart and my affections, right? So music does matter, which is what makes it so hard. I was listening to a, a black brother preach one time. He was talking to, to white pastors. He was talking about music and the church. And here's what he said. He said, um, in, in order for your church to be multi-ethnic and multi-congregational, and he said, there's something, this is what he said, quote, black bodies move with music. He said, something in me, this is Black Brother preaching, something in me, when I hear a beat and when I hear words, that there is a movement that happens. And if you look at gospel music at the black church, there is a movement that happens with the music. So music is important, right? It adds to it, and especially in some culture, like the way we Hear music and the lyrics together do something beautiful in us. So music does matter. I mean, it's so funny. I got Trey and Jarrell down here, two um, my good friends. When they listen to a song together in the office, they're like doing this. And of course, I'm trying to join. I'm like, you know, doing this with them. And they're looking at me like, what are you doing? <laughs> because I'm just stiff. I'm like, yeah. I mean, it's, this is me. This is where I need to live, right here. I need to keep my hands in. I just need it, right? But the tragedy is music has become a dividing ground in churches over the past handful of years. And maybe it was like that hundreds of years ago. Maybe when the Baptist hymnal came out, it was liberal and you know, all this. Worship wars, anyone? Churches you've been in? Contemporary versus traditional. And what happens, you start two different services because you can't mess with my style of music because music is worship. Again, I'm not taking shots at churches that decided to do that. For us, I'm talking Hill City. We will fight for unity. We will fight for unity. We will fight to say we need lots of different songs, lots of different varieties. We won't be defined by a style of music. So this is so cool because, how, remember, how we gather teaches us. I, as an older, I'm one of our seniors in our church now. 
we need to watch a 21-year-old sing and dance to a song like Graves to Gardens. Because that song, the words they're speaking, that, that may be getting them through their fight with pornography. That in the midst of my addiction that's so ever-present, I believe God is going to work and there's going to be a beautiful calling that comes out of this fight. And we need to see that. Now, not saying there's only 21-year-olds to deal with that. At the same time, a 21-year-old needs to look at one of our older members as they sing, Great is Thy Faithfulness, and tears stream down because that's the song that got them through burying their father. You see that? You see the tragedy that happens when we separate? Now, it's a fight to stay together. There's a fight for unity. All of us have to keep laying down our preferences if we're going to be unified. So how we choose songs at Hill City, it's not based on the music. You'll see them on the slides. This is, this is what we use to work through every song we sing. Is it theologically accurate? So proclaim Christ richly. Does it fit within our gospel rhythms? Jesus, God, us, response. Is it congregational? Can the congregation sing it? Which is a whole other question. Because look at our congregation. There's some of you that a slow, folky Bob Dylan song is congregational. And there's some other people like, dude, I can't sing that. And there are some others that hip-hop, they can like, oh, yeah. And I'm like, I'm trying to get there. It's a tough thing. Would you pray for our worship team and our worship leaders to have a diverse, multi-ethnic, multi-generational congregation? Will you pray for them? It's a load. Because everyone's got an opinion on style of music. Everyone's got an opinion. Pray for them. Encourage them. So we can have different preferences of music, but still be together in unity. We can disagree on the styles of music and still be together in unity. This is my favorite. Like, you guys know the song, Is He Worthy? One of our favorites here, right? A guy named Andrew Peterson wrote it, who I've been a follower of Andrew Peterson since I was in college. And you know the bridge part that we do that's like, he is, he is. You guys know that part where it kind of builds? I hate it. I do. Andrew Peterson's version, he doesn't do that. It's nice and chill. He's my age. It's all right. And then these young people, Shane and Shane, came along and had this little cool boom boom. Now, this is Scott and I's argument for two years now. Scott loves the build thing. He loves it. And I just found out this week that Darrell loves it too. And I'm like, I thought I might win that one, but I didn't. Every time, this is so funny, you guys, any time Scott sings that song, right before that bridge hits, wherever I am, whether I'm here or here, he like gives me a little nod. And then he goes right into it. Right? I hate it. But, but then I look and I see people like shouting and screaming. It's unity. An invitation for all of us to keep holding our preferences open-handed as we fight for unity. Now let me close with one thing that I'm going to address, and I'll tell you it's a, hot, it's a hot topic right now. And here's the discussion. Should a church, Hill City, sing songs from people or churches that we might not agree with their theology? 
It's, it is the new, it's not style wars anymore. This is the new kind of thing that's, that's dividing people in churches. Should we sing songs from churches or people we don't agree with? The elders have wrestled with this from the beginning. Last year, we spent a considerable time looking at this. We don't take this lightly. We don't take our role as elders lightly. Like the Bible tells us we will lead and we will give an account how we lead. We don't take it lightly. But here's what I'll tell you. I just want to address it head on. The elders, as we talked about this, here's what we decided. We will be mindful of where songs come from, but we are also very slow to create rules. We're going to evaluate songs based on their individual content. I don't need our worship leader ever to be researching every week on where this song and who wrote this and this. We're going to look at songs individually. We might be wrong. We might. We might be wrong. But as an elder body, from the very beginning, we've been slow to make rules or policies. Um, a year ago, we did an elder retreat, and we had a discussion about baptism, particular child baptism. Not, now, not infant, but like child. Because I come from a tradition where down the, during the service, there's this invitation and people come forward, and I would be down there, and a parent would bring a, how old's that? <laughs> Two, three, four-year-old? <laughs> I don't know. It's been a while since I had kids. Four, a four-year-old down? Okay, pastor, tell him what you did. And now I'm in this predicament where I'm like, this kid doesn't know. And so I just have this conviction that we in the church in America baptize kids too early. Now, please hear me. If you've done that, I'm not saying you're wrong. Again, it's my, just my conviction. So as an elder body, we talked about that. And um, I wanted to set a policy for Hill City. It needs to be, kids need to be the age of whatever. And that came from my experience of this. Now, I was outvoted. I was, there was one vote, and it was me. I was outvoted. Now, I'm still right. <laughs> no, no. I still have my convictions, but here's where I was wrong, is I wanted to create a policy. And as I see the writers of the New Testament, there's always this, this call to not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Like the Jewish faith before Jesus was all of these rules and policies to control people. So we're, we're not going to do that here. We're going to be very mindful of where things come from, but also not set policies. Are we wrong? Maybe. Maybe. Um, here's how we address this issue, if you'll throw that slide up. And this is, a, I think this is a framework to address, no, not that slide, the other side. Thank you. Address every issue. What does the Bible say directly about it? Okay. Uh, is murder God's will for me? Well, does the Bible answer that? Yes, I shall not murder, right? What does the Bible indirectly teach? So here's the reality. The Bible doesn't address specifically every issue. You know that? Um, what does the Bible indirectly teach? Let's take it something like alcohol. You can pull verses on both sides of should Christians drink alcohol. Fair? Yeah, you can. Hey, where are the spirit and my convictions leading me? So there are some people, let's take alcohol, who look at the scripture and say, my conviction is I should not drink alcohol. Amen. That's fine. 
Other Christians say that, yeah, based on my convictions, I believe I can drink alcohol in moderation responsibly. Amen. The danger is, and this is legalism, when convictions are put onto other people. And that's what, as a church, we will press against. And the fourth thing I think is what I do, what do other people with wisdom say? What do other believers who I know and love, what's their wisdom? What do they teach me? Maybe I need to make sure it's not a close-handed issue. It's something that I may think is open-handed as I talk to them. like, no, it's, cl- it's close-handed. Keep this framework up here. Does the Bible say we should not sing songs from churches of people we don't agree with? No. What does the Bible indirectly teach? You can find both sides. I have them in my notes. I don't have time for it. There's both sides. Where are the spirit and convictions leading me? Some of you have different convictions than me. I've been back and forth with this, honestly. I've wrestled with this. I'm still back and forth at times. What do others say? As I've talked with other pastors that I trust and network, the network that we're in, most churches, most pastors that I've talked with land where we do. We'll take songs individually. So everything we do in our gatherings is telling the story. We're telling the story. And our, how we worship does something in us. Christian worship is formative. I was going to do more thing. I'll get that later. Where things are open-handed issues, we want to have our preferences and convictions and agree in the Lord. Where it's close-handed, we got to unite together. Here's my prayer in regards to music at Hill City. Can we not let this divide us? Have your convictions, have your preferences. Discuss, wrestle in love and in unity. That's the call. Let's not divide around this. Galatians 5. This is how I'll end. And this verse is not at anyone, it's at us together. For you, brothers and sisters, we're called to freedom. Don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love, serve one another. That's the call of unity. Through love, serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you're not consumed by one another. There are all kinds of issues in our culture right now that would would divide us if we will let them. Should we wear a mask? Should we not? Is racial issues a thing or is it not? Lord, have mercy, we have an election coming up. That's all we need. Hear me, we will not divide. We will not divide. We will have our preferences, we will have our convictions, but we must have love first. We must continue to hold our opinions loosely because you're not always right. I need to hold my opinions loosely because I'm not always right. The call 
is love. May Hill City Church, may we love one another. May we center our hearts and our gatherings around the gospel. And each week as we gather, may we remind one another that God is holy, that we are sinful, we're broken, we're wrong. Yet in Christ, Jesus came as our substitute to bring us back to God. And now the invitation is that we love one another. All through the New Testament, love one another. It's over, 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 more than be right. Love one another. May we do that in response to a God who loved us while we were his enemies. Let's pray together.